Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. And today on the program, we'll have a bit of a focus on cities as I speak to Andrea Levy about the municipal elections in Montreal and also have a discussion with Elle Flanders about the Toronto International Film Festival. We're also going to be talking to sports columnist Simon Black, who has written a column on Castor Semenya, who has recently been tested regarding her gender. We'll also have Music is the Weapon with Mitch Podolik. And Around the Left in Seven Days. As well as the Alert Headlines. That and much more on Alert Radio. And now the alert headlines for the week of September 17th, 2009. The Canadian government is under pressure from environmentalists concerned about the Alberta oil sands. The oil sands project proposed between Canada and the U.S. is resulting in global outrage. While oil industry executive David Collier said that oil sands represent only 5% of Canadian emissions, environmentalists have responded that oil sands are rapidly becoming a major source of emissions in the world. Andrew Nikiforek, representing Greenpeace in a recently published report on the subject, stated that oil sands emissions will triple by 2020 if the government carries through with its plans. President Hamid Karzai of Afghanistan has been accused of massive electoral fraud. The Election Commission reported that half a million of the ballots were invalid. Karzai supporters registered tens of thousands of fraudulent votes at legitimate voting stations. The evidence against Karzai has been documented by UN officials. Less than a third of registered voters cast ballots for the August 20th election. The process of electoral recount could take months to complete. Karzai is allied with warlords and drug traffickers across Afghanistan. NATO officials are reassessing their relations with this corrupt government. Canada and many other countries have reported their intentions of pulling out of Afghanistan. This situation is also creating difficulties in U.S. for President Barack Obama's reconstruction plans for Afghanistan. The motion Obama put forward included an emphasis on agriculture and re-evaluation of the justice system. The corruption within the government may prevent Obama's plans from following through. Although NATO is urging countries to keep their troops in Afghanistan, Within the next couple of years, the U.S. may be the only country left. In a related story, Sun columnist and Afghanistan authority Eric Margolis said that many parties were banned from entering into the Afghanistan election and that NATO and the U.S. determined which parties were allowed to run in the election. The U.S. financed the operation. Margolis believes that a peace agreement is necessary. He said that American and NATO soldiers will never be able to change Afghanistan's social behavior or and tribal customs that go back thousands of years. To create peaceful stability, foreign troops will need to withdraw. Conditions in Colombia are dangerous as human rights violations and mass killings persist under President Alvaro Uribe. Nakama Miller, an official of the National Council of Latin American and Caribbean Women, says that a free trade agreement would not be economically beneficial to citizen, Colombian citizens themselves. The U.S. has disregarded this information. The U.S. has offered a free trade agreement in exchange for allowing American control over eight Colombian air bases. Canada is in the process of ratifying a free trade agreement with Colombia. Human rights organizations around the world are concerned with the ethical consequences of such an arrangement. In the past, when Pierre Elliott Trudeau was the Canadian Prime Minister, Canada refused to go along with the U.S. embargo of Cuba. Whether current leader of the opposition, Michael Ignatieff, will follow in Trudeau's footsteps and vote against ratification of this free trade agreement remains to be seen. Latet, an Israeli humanitarian group, has published an alternative poverty report detailing the dire situation in Israel. More than one-sixth of the country's population suffers from economic insecurity. The recession has caused the situation to worsen. Tens of thousands are expected to drop below the poverty line over the next year. One in four poor parents has had their child taken away from them because of financial difficulties. 75% of the needy are unable to cover the cost of housing. Latet launched a campaign to feed 200,000 needy families to combat poverty. Latet also organized a nationwide food drive and a virtual dinner party to raise both awareness and funds. And those were the alert headlines.
And now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of September 17th, 2009. On September 21st, the world will be celebrating the International Day of Peace. This is an opportunity for people all over the world to engage in simple and practical acts of peace. There are many organized activities in cities all over the world. Judy Rebeck and Gilles Paquette are guest speakers at a town hall on new economic challenges. The evening, entitled Help Wanted, Jobs Crisis and Broken EI, is being held at the Rogers Communication Centre at Ryerson University on Monday, September 21st at 6pm. The event is organised by the Good Jobs for All Coalition. Also on Monday, September 21st, at the University of Toronto's St. George campus, Ken Wiwa, special assistant to the President of Nigeria, will discuss the lawsuits brought against Shell Oil and its Nigerian subsidiaries for the human rights abuses of the Ogani people in Nigeria. The lecture begins at 12.30. The agenda for Another University is Possible, a public forum on student, faculty and worker struggles in the Knowledge Factory, includes lectures on topics such as academic freedom, free education, and university workers' and faculty members' rights. Guest speakers include union members, former professor Dennis Rancourt, and members of a Quebec student union who were active during the 2005-2007 province-wide strikes. This public forum is held at the McMaster University Student Centre September 18th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. The theme of this year's Take Back the Night in Winnipeg is domestic violence, violence against sex trade workers and the numerous missing and murdered Aboriginal women. The march is an attempt to reclaim the streets for all. This year's march begins at 7 p.m. on September 17th at the Orioles Community Club, corner of St. Matthews Avenue and Burnell Street. The first fall meeting of Faculty for Palestine in Toronto is Friday, September 18th at 3 o'clock in Jorgensen Hall at Ryerson University. F4P is a committee of the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid and aims to defend freedom of speech on campus, support the boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign, and engages in other solidarity work with Palestinian academics. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on the tab labeled Events. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined now by Elle Flanders. On August 28th, Toronto filmmaker and longtime gay rights activist John Grayson wrote an open letter to the directors of the Toronto International Film Festival, also known as TIFF. He pulled his short film, Covered, out of the festival, which is one of the world's top, and opened on September 10th. His decision was to protest TIFF's spotlight on Tel Aviv. This is the first time the Toronto International Film Festival has held a city-to-city spotlight, and it is on Tel Aviv, a city that is symbolic to Zionist Jews, Jews of Israel's success, and to Palestinians of the ethnic cleansing that took place to found the state of Israel. We have on the phone now, in Toronto, filmmaker El Flanders, one of the original organizers and signatory of the open letter, signed by arts and culture luminaries such as Naomi Klein, Howard Zinn, Jane Fonda, Danny Glover, John Berger, Alice Walker, Ken Loach, and several Israeli and Palestinian filmmakers and artists protesting the decision to celebrate Tel Aviv for the inaugural City to City Spotlight at the Toronto International Film Festival. Welcome to Alert, L. Flanders. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, it is a huge event, and I'd like to give you this opportunity to clarify. Did the letter call for a boycott of the festival or of any specific filmmakers? No. The letter did not call for a boycott. We found it very interesting that we clearly demarcated that it was a protest um, and a letter of protest. And in fact, we also made it clear in our position when we spoke with um, when we spoke with the director Cameron Bailey, the co-director of the festival. We we had a long conversation, about a two-hour conversation, um, and we made it clear that there was absolutely no boycott whatsoever. I mean, we're all mostly anti-censorship activists. We do distinguish between boycott and censorship. Uh, there are those of us on the committee who felt boycott might be a stronger position and those who felt that this was perhaps a way in which we could garner more support. And so we went with a protest, and we felt that it actually really worked this time. 
Um, and we felt like people listened. And what we wanted to do was distract people away from the issue, which they kept trying to drag us back into in the TIFF conversation, which was this idea that we were objecting to the films. And we should see the films before we raise an objection. And we said, no, it's got nothing to do with the individual films. It's got to do with the fact that you are celebrating Tel Aviv eight months after the massacre of Gaza, and you're doing so in collusion with the Israeli government and their new campaign called Brand Israel. Can you expand on that Brand Israel briefly? Um, Yeah, the Brand Israel campaign started, I think, somewhere around 2005, 2006. Sipi Livni, who was then foreign minister, made a long statement um, sort of talking about how important it was for Israel to present uh, a new image. They recognized quite quickly that um, certainly 2006, post-Lebanon, that they were slipping way down in the polls of public opinion, and they needed to figure out how to sort of show a prettier face of Israel. So... Um, the Minister of Culture uh, recently sort of sent out a missive, I think it was about a year ago, saying that they were going to send cultural figures, theaters, um, writers, and disseminate, you know, Israeli culture all over the world so that you would see the prettier face of Israel and focus, take your focus off the conflict. And they chose Toronto and Amir Gissin, who is the Consul General here from Israel, um, to sort of be the be the one to put that put that into motion. So Amir Gissin then made a statement here in Toronto, uh, October 2008, in which he talked about how they were going to put this into play, um, again stating that it was going to take, uh, they were going to highlight Israel's achievements in medicine, uh, culture, and technology in order to take our eyes away from the conflict and show Israel's good side. Um, and he said that it was going to start with the Dead Sea Scrolls and that it was going to culminate. It's a $4 million campaign. Uh, one of the Reitmans gave to the campaign, and uh, also um, David Asper gave to the campaign. And um, that campaign basically, they said, would end, would culminate with a large presence at the Toronto International Film Festival um, with cultural luminaries from around the world, Hollywood big shots, um, and Israeli filmmakers. And here we are. So we said that whether it was direct or indirect collusion, nonetheless, and we know how these things work, um, that they were participating in that propaganda campaign. And we objected strongly to using our festival to create this sort of political, deeply political statement about Israel. Very much in line with the Harper government, too, may I add. Can you tell us what kind of impact the open letter has had on the festival itself? Well, it created a huge tiff at tiff. <laughs> um, you know, the letter itself sort of became quite viral and uh, went viral and became uh, vile as far as they were concerned, a success as far as we were concerned. Um, Naomi really took it to the next level and sort of uh, we had this enormous response and we felt like we you know that the tide is turning and we were we were excited to actually see the fruits of you know many years of hard labor of trying to get the other story out the other side amidst all the israeli noise and propaganda coming from this coming from that side and we felt that we needed the justice side to be heard and it was um, I did want to mention that, I don't know if you saw the news today, but Jane Fonda actually retracted her, her signing of the letter. And one of the reasons that she did that, and we know that, although I'm not sure if she stated this clearly enough or not, um, was that she was pressured. She was pressured by, she had her funding, she had a small charity that she supported and built in Atlanta that served black single mothers. Um, and on her board were many Jews who felt very strongly that they didn't like it, and they threatened to cu- cut all her funding. Um, they had a fundraiser which they had planned, which they canceled. Um, I think one of the guys on the board was a former head of the ADL, and uh, they basically, I'm quite sure, I mean, I don't have this as fact, but <laughs> we know if they were cutting her funding, and if they cut a fundraiser, that she was feeling enormous pressure. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very sad, but the bullies and, you know, more so Jane has a very strong opposition to being bullied and bullying, but those forces are very strong, and I think that's what we're up against.
So your critics have accused you of politicizing the film festival, but you respond that it's actually not you who politicized it, but this is a response to the politicization of mm-hmm. the festival. I mean, the way the way that we framed it and the way that we understand it is is that that the kind of politicization that they're talking about really had nothing to do with us, but rather their use of Tel Aviv and their use of a city, and you know, I think by by therefore by virtue of by connection to a state, um, and especially such a volatile one, especially one with such a terrible human rights record at the moment, um, to put it in that position. Uh, and to put it along with this campaign, this ongoing campaign, was a direct politicization. And in fact, we felt that the filmmakers themselves um, deserve the right to be heard outside of that politicization in the rest of the program, with everybody else, with Elias Suleiman, the Palestinian filmmaker, with Yusri Nasrallah. But why distinguish them? What is it that we're saying when you're pulling them out and you're doing a spotlight and you're doing a celebration? Other, other than the politicizing of, of Israel. El um, Flanders, you're a director, a filmmaker in uh, Toronto, an outspoken yes. one. Can you tell us about how you personally got involved in this open letter? Well, I recently just got back from Ramallah. I spent uh, nine months in Ramallah with my uh, partner, and, um, you know, I, I was working on several new films. I grew up in Jerusalem, and that's kind of my background. I'm Jewish. I grew up in a Zionist home um, and became active against the occupation from the time I was about 19 or 20 when I learned a different narrative. And I've pretty much been going ever since. And uh, that's a long time, and we just won't mention how many years. But put it this way, I was around for the first Intifada. And um, so since 89, I've pretty much been making my work uh, almost singularly around these issues. And we just, uh, we spent the nine months in Ramallah and just got back. And the next thing we knew, um, with new films, by the way, about the apartheid roads that are um, being built currently in the West, throughout the West Bank. So there are roads that are for Palestinians only and roads that are for Jews only. Um, and you can be sure that the distinction is superhighways versus village roads. So we've made uh, little pieces about that, little short films, um, that's working towards a larger installation. And we came back literally about, I guess, uh, sort of early June. And we had heard about the spotlight. John had uh, told me that he had heard that this was going to happen. And uh, we just felt we needed to do something. I mean, we tried. We tried to have a meeting with Tiff. We tried to talk to them about it. There was no response. And then when we started to gear up, and I think that they saw that we were serious, they called a meeting. And the meeting was two weeks before the opening of the festival. And Cameron sat down with us and had a two-hour-long meeting. And it was the first time we saw the program guide. And we just, you know, it it confirmed our worst fears. Um, I think he thought it would allay them. And uh, we said, no, this is completely unacceptable, and we're just going to go forward with our protest. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm speaking with Toronto filmmaker Elle Flanders. Final question for you. Can you tell us if you think the campaign will have an impact beyond the Toronto International Film Festival? Yeah, of course it will. I mean, I think we've seen such a flurry of press around this, and I think that people know that there's more to this than... This is not simply about a spotlight at TIFF. This is about you know, the ongoing human rights abuses that are constantly being covered up uh, by Israel, their ongoing um, defiance of, of having any kind of investigation into Gaza. We know that this is bigger. It's, it's clearly going to get bigger. There has been a big outcry. We've just uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, which is um, an organization out of San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken, has just sort of joined our campaign, and they have over 90,000 people who have received the email. We've had, within one day, 2,500 new signatories to our letter. One day. They said it's the fastest-growing petition they've ever seen. So I think, yes, I mean, I think that the left, and not just the left, but even even the centrists, are ready to speak out, are ready to move forward, are ready to really try and make this occupation end, and this is the day we need to see. Gaza was the line in the sand, I think, for a lot of people, and while this has been going on for 60 years, I think really the atrocities of Gaza got people thinking. 
and uh, we hope that this will really snowball. Elf Landers speaking to us from Toronto. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Following her victory in Berlin last August, Castor Semenya, the South African runner and 800-meter women's world champion, has been subjected to a very public interrogation of her gender identity. Simon Black, sports columnist for Canadian Dimension magazine, addressed this story in a forthcoming issue. Welcome to Alert, Simon Black. Uh, Give us the background to the story, Simon. What are the main issues we're dealing with here? Well, Castor Semenya is a a woman athlete who, uh, in August, won the 800-meter uh, track and field championship in uh, in Berlin. And since her victory, um, she's been subjected, to, as you said in your introduction, a very public interrogation of her, of her uh, gender identity. And um, this has involved the International Athletics Association um, using what they, what they term to be a gender test, which is really a sex test, to determine whether... Um, Castor should be competing uh, as a as in in men's or women's events. And they bring in a whole load of doctors, psychologists, um, um, sociologists, and uh, gynecologists to determine her her gender, as they put it, and um, to determine her future in athletics and also the standing of her gold medal that she won. And so we hear terms, Simon, like hermaphrodite and intersex being applied uh, to this current situation. What can you tell us about these two terms? Well, hermaphrodite is not something that we, that we uh, people within the LGBTQIT community use. Um, hermaphrodite uh, was commonly used to refer to, um, to intersex people. Um, um, intersexuality is, is, is something that is more common than people think. It's really a general term that can relate to various conditions. Uh, many intersex people are born with uh, ambiguous genitalia or sex organs that are not clearly female or male. Um, when the, the International Athletics Federation says it's doing a gender test, they're, they're really not using the right terminology. Gender, as, as we know, is a, is a social construction that's based on how a society views how women and men should look and behave and what roles they should play in society, how they should um, perform in, in, in athletics and frequently what types of rewards they receive, you know, hence the term like gender uh, inequity. So it's really a sex test is what they're doing to determine um, uh, uh, Castor's sex. But the early reports from this, this test, um, at least by through, through the Australian media, has said that, that, that Castor is intersex, um, which is not uncommon. But the, the way the, the media is, is um, treating this uh, and exposing um, someone um, and trying to determine for themselves what sex and what gender means is, is, is really been, the coverage has been, um, has been terrible and confusing the two terms. Well, when we talk about gender identity like you brought up, is this something that has come up, uh, Simon, in international sports before? Yeah, the, I mean, the history of sex testing really goes all the way back into, I think the, I think the first time it was brought up was in the 1936 uh, European Track and Field Championships, or, or the Olympics, I can't quite recall. Um, so there's a long history of it. I mean, the, the deeper questions that, that something like this incident raises is we have a society of uh, continued to think of uh, you know, these divisions and binaries between men and women, males and females, and these are, this is like one of our most basic categorizations for making sense of the world. Um, instances like this really should try to make us realize that this man, woman, male, female binaries, and the way institutions such as the Olympics or international athletics treats them are not legitimate and never have been. Um, sex, gender, and sexuality are a lot more various and flexible than what, um, than what society's dominant constructions of, of what's quote-unquote normal in our society has, has, has thus far allowed. And so what do athletes say about this issue, Simon, then? I mean, you're, you're mentioning that we need to be a little bit more... Um, observant of the fact that there are differences and it shouldn't make much of a difference in the end if male or female and that there is a bit of a crossover or there could be. But what do the athletes say? Are they kind of categorizing male, female? What is their mindset like? Well, in this, in this, particular, um, this particular case of Castor Semien, the, the, 
the 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 athletes themselves have been quite quiet. I don't know if they've been quiet or they just haven't been reported, or um, or they they just haven't taken positions on the matter. Uh, other than that, there's been kind of two very public statements, one made by Carl Lewis and another by Michael Johnson, both um, world champions uh, runners from the United States, which have really just condemned the treatment that both the global media and the International Athletics Federation. Um, you know, have have dealt out to to Castor, and she, you know she's an, a, a young woman, eighteen year old woman, who is now being exposed to a tremendous amount of pressure and really a public interrogation of her identity. She identifies as a woman, and uh, really that should be the end of it, as far as the International Athletics Federation is concerned. Well, we'll soon find out, Simon, uh, what happens with this issue. But we want to thank you for joining Alert Radio today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks. And that was Simon Black, sports columnist for Canadian Dimension magazine. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. The city of Montreal is in the early stages of an election. We rarely look at municipal politics here on Alert, but Montreal politics are an exception. We have on the phone, in her home in Montreal, Andrea Levy, a municipal activist all of her, of her life, and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Welcome to Alert, Andrea. Hi, nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Now tell us about this election. What are the issues? Well, two of the key issues are corruption and transparency. And um, the, the scale of corruption, and particularly patronage and graft, is pretty staggering at the moment. There's a Montreal Gazette urban affairs reporter, Linda Goulai, who showed that 94% of the companies who gave money to the ruling municipal party actually received city contracts in the party's first term in office. And, uh, and there are currently about half a dozen police investigations into corruption at City Hall. And the most publicized scandals involve the privatization of the city's housing agency, which resulted in the sale of city property at far below market value to developers with alleged mob connections. And then there was also the controversial award of a $355 million contract to install water meters in the city's commercial properties. And that unprecedentedly large contract, which has since been suspended, went to a consortium which involved a sketchy entrepreneur who's being investigated for tax fraud. And it came out that the former chairman of the city's executive committee, Frank Zampino, had vacationed on the shady businessman's yacht. So these kinds of corruption scandals were serious enough to land Montreal's municipal administration in the pages of The Economist a few months ago. And, of course, a lot of that has been high profile in the media, and uh, it's on voters' minds. And it's also connected with the other issue, which is transparency. Because over the years, power has become more and more concentrated in the hands of the mayor and the executive committee, which meets in camera. And uh, there's also an issue of administrative structures, which are quite complex in Montreal. There are 19 boroughs, and each borough has its own mayor and council with powers over certain areas like zoning. And uh, so the main opposition parties maintain that this results in a system of little fiefdoms without actually making municipal government substantively more democratic. And for voters, it means that you actually have a minimum of three ballots to cast in an election, a minimum. Some have five, because <laughs> you're voting for your local councillor in a district, and then you're voting for your borough mayor, and then you're voting for the city mayor. So it's pretty complex <laughs> to work your way through. And then there's, there are other issues, like the issue of aging infrastructure, like roads and sewers, and that's, that's an issue that's shared by many municipalities across the country and across, across North America. And then there's a lot of concern about transportation, for example, with the rising cost of public transportation and how best to offer alternatives to car use. Andrea Levy, can you identify for us the candidates in this municipal election upcoming in Montreal? Sure. Well, there are the, the thing that I need to mention is that Montreal is a little different, I think, than, than many places in Canada in the sense that uh, we have a tradition of independent political parties. From what I gather, political parties elsewhere tend to be tributary of federal and provincial parties, but in Montreal that's not the case. There have always been independent parties. Even though there are um, high-profile politicians from other levels of government that get involved in these parties, and that's, that's the case in the current election, but there are 
actual independent political parties. And in the current context, there are four of those. There's the ruling party, which is called Union Montreal. There's the leading contender, which is called Vision Montreal. There's uh, the most progressive option, which is called Projet Montréal. And there's also a small right-wing party. And, and uh, um, who, who, who represents, who are the individuals at the head of these various parties? Right. Well, the, the incumbent for mayor is uh, Mayor Gérald Tremblay, and he's a former provincial liberal party minister of industry. And his union party has been in power for eight years, and this is the party that's enmeshed in all the corruption scandals. And his main rival is Louise Arel, and she's a newcomer to municipal politics, at least at the municipal level. She's a former Parti Québécois minister of municipal affairs. And she's seen in some quarters as a relatively progressive candidate. She has a reputation for being a very hardline independentist, and that's not going to play well with a good chunk of Montreal's Anglo and ethnic communities. Um, also, as a provincial minister, she was partly responsible for a very hotly contested municipal merger process in 2002, and uh, she's blamed for a lot of what went wrong in that. And her party, Vision Montreal, is not a real democratic party. At the moment, it's, it's primarily a vessel for her personal aspirations, and also it has no program. She's um, promising to consult experts in various fields, and she's been clear about wanting greater centralization, and she's expressed concerns about the ghettoization of ethnic groups, but so far it's, it's pretty vague. And, uh, and then there's Richard Bergeron, and he's the leader of Projet Montréal, which is the most progressive and democratic of the contending parties. And I shouldn't forget to mention, just in fairness, Louise O'Sullivan, who's the leader of a small right-wing party. Of course, the media tends to focus on personalities and portrays this as a two-way race. Um, at the moment, Harel has a slight edge over Tremblay in the polls, but more than a third of voters remain undecided. And I'm hoping that, uh, that some of those voters will decide in favor of Projet Montréal, which, which I consider the best option for progressives. And can you tell us why you hold that opinion, please, Andrea? Well, Projet Montréal is, is a real party. It has an active grassroots membership, and it has a 70-page program that's really the outcome of, of a long process of discussion and debate among, among the, the members. And it's a party that's committed to transparency and fighting corruption. And that pledge actually got a boost recently when uh, the former judge of the sponsorship scandals, John Gomery, joined, uh, joined the party as head of the, of the fundraising campaign. So the party stands for integrity and for greater ethics in municipal politics, and it's committed, for instance, to ensuring that the city's executive committee meets in public rather than behind closed doors. But perhaps it's best known for its environmental concerns. Um, the leader, Richard Bergeron, is himself an urban planner whose dream has been for a long time to build a tramway in Montreal as a means of reducing car traffic, along with lower transit fares and fewer parking spaces and various measures to make the city even more friendly to cyclists. And in general, the party stands for a more human-scale Montreal and for making the city much more attractive as a place for families to live, as a way to combat urban sprawl. And the party has some very good local candidates and stands a chance in a number of neighborhoods. It's currently showing 5% in the polls, but uh, I hope that number is going to rise as the election draws nearer because Montreal really desperately needs a serious critical opposition at City Hall. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm speaking with Andrea Levy. Now, now that you've told us what you'd like to see happen in the upcoming Montreal election, can you give us your prediction? Well, um, I, I, I think it's, it's still impossible to say quite what's going to happen um, one of the problems is that voter turnout in municipal elections is very low. Uh, in the last election, it was an abysmal 32%. So perhaps because of, because of some of the high-profile issues, there'll be a greater voter turnout this time. And I think a lot is going to depend on how, to what extent parties can bring their vote out. Um, at the moment, Arel is leading Tremblay by a few percentage points, and uh, Projet Montréal has about 5% in the polls, but it's still early, and, uh, and there's more than a third of Montreal voters who are undecided. So, so it's really hard to say. Well, then, uh, thank you very much for speaking with us today, and uh, depending on the outcome, we may take another look. Thank Andrea Levy, much. thank you for joining us today on Alert. Andrea Levy.
Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon, and I am the new host of this uh, wonderful segment, replacing Andre Clement. And I'm going to be bringing you all kinds of folk music from all over the world, and pretty much most of the folk music is just what it says it is. It's working-class music and working-class culture, and that's what this segment is about. So I thought I would start today with... Uh, with uh, talking about a working-class hero, or at least an ostensible working-class hero. I don't, I don't know whether you know this or not, but the common conception in North America and the entire Earth is that it was the, the Roman occupiers of, uh, of Palestine and the rabbis who were frightened by Jesus who actually killed them together. That, that was the politic of the day. But actually, I don't know that to be true because when I grew up in Toronto— I was called Christ killer all the time. So I always thought, yeah, it was me. I did it. I nailed him up. It was me. It wasn't just some guy over there in Palestine. It was me because I was a Christ killer. And as I grew up and began to discover about folk music, I began to discover about how people looked at Jesus and all the different ways that people looked at Jesus, including great left-wing heroes like Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie talked about Jesus as a working class hero. He said, when Jesus came to town, the working folks around believed what he did say. The bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on a cross and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Poor working people, they followed him around, sung and shouted gay. Cops and the soldiers, they nailed him in the air and they nailed Jesus Christ in his grave. Now, Woody was a member of the American Communist Party and Woody start trying to adapt Jesus as a working-class hero. And this idea of adapting Jesus as a working-class hero didn't just, uh, just didn't stay in America. Another great uh, folk singer, Ewan McCall, who happens to be Pete Seeger's uh, brother-in-law, also treated Jesus as a working-class hero. Jesus was a working man, a carpenter by trade, born in the slums of Bethlehem at the turning of the year. Yes, the turning of the year. He became a wandering journeyman, and he wandered far and wide, and he saw how wealth and poverty lived always side by side. Yes, lived always side by side. He said, come on, all you working men, you farmers and weavers too. If you will only organize, this world belongs to you. Yes, this world belongs to you. When the rich men heard what the carpenter had done, to the Roman troops they ran, saying, put this rebel Jesus down. He's a menace to God and man. Yes, a menace to God and man. Well, that's kind of interesting stuff for, for good left-wing, uh, left-wing guys to think about Jesus, but that is not the only view. Uh, Leon Rosselson, who is a great British writer, uh, wrote a different kind of song about Jesus, and the title is Stand Up, Stand Up for Judas, because Leon believes that Jesus was a misleader of the working people of the time. So here is Dick Gochen singing Stand Up for Judas. The Romans were the masters when Jesus walked the land In Judea and in Galilee they ruled with an iron hand And the poor were sick with hunger And the rich were clothed in splendor And the rebels, whipped and crucified, hung rotting as a warning And Jesus knew the answer given to Caesar what is Caesar's? Said, love your enemies. But Judas was a zealot, and he wanted to be free. Resist, he said, the Romans' tyranny. Now Jesus was a conjurer, and miracles were his game. And he fed the hungry thousands, and they glorified his name. He cured the lame and the lepers And he calmed the wind and the weather And the wretched flocked to touch him So their troubles would be taken And Jesus knew the answer All you who labor All you who suffer Only believe in me but Judas sought a world where no one starved or begged for bread. The poor are always with us, Jesus said. So stand up, stand up for Judas and the cause that Judas served. 
It was Jesus who betrayed the poor with his word. Now Jesus sowed division where none had been before. Not the slave against the master, but the poor against the poor. Set son to rise up against father, and brother to fight against brother. For he that is not with me is against me, was his teaching. Said Jesus, I am the answer. You unbelievers shall burn forever, shall die in your sins. Not sheep and goats, said Judas, but together we may dare shake off the chains of tyranny we share. So stand up, stand up for Judas and the cause that Judas served. It was Jesus who betrayed the poor with his word. Jesus stood upon the mountain with a distance in his eyes. I am the way, the light. He cried, the light that never dies. So renounce all earthly treasures and pray to your heavenly Father. And he pacified the hopeless with the hope of life eternal. Said Jesus, I am the answer. And you hunger, only remember your rewards in heaven. So Jesus preached the other world, but Judas wanted this, and he betrayed his master with a kiss. So stand up, stand up for Judas, and the cause that Judas served. It was Jesus who betrayed the poor with his word. By sword and gun and crucifix, Christ's gospel has been spread. Two thousand cruel years have shown the way that Jesus led. The heretics burned in torture, and the butcher and bloody crusaders. The bombs and rockets sanctified that rained down death from heaven. They followed Jesus. They knew the answer. All unbelievers must be believers. Or else be broken So place no trust in saviors, Judas said For everyone must be to his or her own self a son That was Dick Gochen singing Stand Up for Judas written by British songwriter Leon Rosselson who also wrote this wonderful little ditty and I think in the time when you see Guys like uh, Gary Dewar going off under the Reform Alliance flag to Washington, D.C. The song, though it's British, really kind of uh, uh, strikes sort of a really interesting, uh, interesting message. It's called The Battle Hymn of the New Socialists. The cloth cap and the working class as images are dated. And we are labor's avant-garde, and we were educated. We feel we ought to drop clause four to make the public love us more. And just to show we're still sincere, we'll sing the red flag once a year. Firm principles and policies are open to objections, and the streamlined party images the way to win elections. So raise the umbrella high, the bowler hat and eat and tie. We'll stand united, raise a cheer, and sing the red flag once a year. Although we may be socialists, we're too discreet to stress it. And nationalization is a flop, so let's confess it. We'll reform the country bit by bit, so nobody will notice it. Then ever after, never fear, we'll sing the red flag once a year. 
shall not cease the man to fight till every wrong is righted. And all men are equal quite, and all our leaders knighted. For we are sure if we persist to make the New Year's honors list. Then every loyal labor peer will sing the red flag once a year. Vote for us and not for them. We're just as true to NATO. We're just as calm and British when we steer the ship of state. We will stand as firm as them, patriotic gentlemen. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll sing the red flag once a year. That was Mary Jane and Winston Young with the Battle Hymn of the New Socialists, and I always think that's a great song to sing. Mary Jane and Winston Young, for your information, used to be part of the that early uh, 60s, late 50s folk revival in Toronto, and they were very much the big duet on the folk scene in Canada until Ian and Sylvia arrived. Next thing we're going to hear is Aragon Mill, sung by Rosalie Sorrells. Aragon Mill was written by Cy Khan, who, of course, is a great American folk writer and a, and a very active social struggle person. And uh, he's an amazing character, and he's amazingly intuitive about the way people are in towns. He's written a song about a, a mill town that's closed down, and uh, I really think it's quite beautiful. Aragon Mill. At the east edge of town, at the foot of the hill, stands a chimney so tall, it says Aragon Mill. But there's no smoke at all coming out of the stack, that mill. My old man and I And there's no children at all In the narrow empty streets The looms have all gone And it's so quiet I can't sleep And only tune I hear is the sound It blows through the town Weave and spin Weave and spin The mill has shut down It's the only life I know Tell me where can I go Tell me where can I go Cause the Is the sound of the wind As it blows through the town Weave and spin, weave and spin At the east edge of town At the foot of the hill Stands a chimney so tall It says Aragon Are you cold, forlorn, and hungry? Are there lots of things you lack? Is your life made up of misery? Then dump the bosses off your back. Are your clothes all torn and tattered? Are you living in a shack? Would you have your troubles scattered? Then dump the bosses off your back. Are you almost split asunder, loaded like a long-eared jack? Boob, why don't you buck like thunder And dump the bosses off your back All the agonies you suffer You could end with one good whack 
Stiffen up, you ornery duffer, and dump the bosses off your back. Bom, bom, bom. That was Rosalie Sorrells with the Aragon Mills and you, Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest with Dump the Bosses Off Your Back. And now to finish up, music is the weapon. Here is Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers with the Rising of the Moon. Then tell me, Sean O'Farrell, tell me why you hurry so. Hush me, Bookle, hush and listen, and his cheeks were all aglow. I bear orders from the captain, get you ready quick and soon. For the pikes must be together by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon, by the rising of the moon. For the pipes must be together by the rising of the moon. Oh, then tell me, Sean O'Farrell, where the gathering is to be. In the old spot by the river, right well known to you and me. One word more for signal token, whistle up the marching tune. With your pike upon your shoulder by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon With your pike upon your shoulder By the rising of the moon Out of many a mud wall cavern Eyes were watching through the night Many a manly heart was throbbing For the coming morning light Murmurs ran along the valleys like the banshee's lonely croon, and a thousand pikes were flashing by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon, by the rising of the moon, and a thousand pikes were flashing by the rising of the moon. There beside the singing river that dark mass of men was seen, Far above their shining weapons hung their own beloved green. Dead to every foe and traitor, forward strike the marching tune. And our army buys for freedom, tis the rising of the moon. This is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. That is all for Alert This Week. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. Thanks, as usual, to the people that help us put this radio program together. Sagan Morrow for writing the headlines. Ben Wood for Around the Left in Seven Days. Our technical producer, Tommy Allen. And our executive producer, Cy Gonick. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com.